Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters 23 through 25 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. Chapter 23, No Way Out, Lyra and Roger reunite and argue about who is to blame for his death, never once blaming his murderer, Lord Asriel. Then Lyra explains to Roger how she overheard Dr. Lancelius talking about the witch prophecy and how she was very careful to never think about it or mention it or appear in any scenes where it was discussed, but it totally did happen. Lyra believes that the prophecy was about saving all the dead by creating a way out. Then she explains how Will is better than Roger in every way. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't read this first. I was counting on you guys not reading it first. There's lots of sarcasm. You're channeling on you. Wow, I'm. Oh, uh, thank you for that compliment. I wish I had written these. <laughs> Then she explains how Will is better than Roger in every way, including the fact that he is alive. <laughs> Will, Will explains the plan to the Galavespians, and they try to keep the harpies away while he creates um, a window back to the regular world. But they are too deep underground and need to go higher. Meanwhile, the ghosts demand that Lyra tell them about all the things they miss in the world, and she is forced to tell the truth, her least favorite thing. After she tells about a mud fight, she discovers that even the harpies are quietly listening to her because the truth can nourish even the most cruel people. Uh, Tialis calmly explains a logical solution that would be best for everyone, and the harpies are persuaded in the way that sadistic, selfish people always are. Wow, I love the harpies. This is terrible. The deal is, they will collect the stories of people's lives in return for guiding them to the way out. But they don't have to if the person was a jerk. That's not what it says at all. Oh my god. Lyra tells the ghosts that their bodies will dissolve back into the world when they leave, and only self-deluded religious assholes protest that everyone should not have a free choice in how long they exist. Jesus Christ. <laughs> in chapter 24, Mrs. Coulter in Geneva. Mrs. Coulter lands the intention craft in the magisterium and thinks how much she loves the machine because it is obedient and silent, unlike her daughter. She demands oh a meeting with Father McPhail and explains to him that everything would have been fine if he had not disturbed her and Lyra in the cave. She tells him how Lord Asriel has a cooler base than him with better stuff and how the authority is probably not God after all. As a reward, Father McPhail locks her up. 
Mrs. Coulter discovers Lord Roke has followed her so he can spy on her, so she naturally orders him to stand guard while she sleeps. Later, a priest sneaks into her room and steals the locket she has been wearing since the first novel and has always been included in the descriptions of Mrs. Coulter, having not been suddenly invented for this book. Lord Roke follows the priest and watches as Father MacPhail takes a lock of Lyra's hair from the pendant, then explains his evil plan in detail to kill Lyra. They will give her the most savage haircut of all time by creating an atomic explosion via quantum entanglement. When the priest returns the locket, Lord Roke wakes Mrs. Coulter and tells her MacPhail's plan. In chapter 25, Saint-Jean-les-Eaux, Father MacPhail moves Mrs. Coulter to a zeppelin and Lord Roke listens in on his plans. Apparently deciding he has enough information, he moves to the only logical, logical location available. <laughs> Inside Mrs. Coulter's coat, pressed against her breasts. The plan is to use Mrs. Coulter's incision machine to separate her from the golden monkey, and use the energy to have a blast. When they land, Mrs. Coulter escapes and searches for Lyra's lock of hair. Father MacPhail orders the witch working at the facility to search for Mrs. Coulter, Ignoring the witch's foreshadowing warning of something is coming, MacPhail decides to sacrifice his own demon in the machine whilst Lord Roke fights with the witch. Lord Roke and the witch kill each other, and the golden monkey uses a distraction to try and steal Lyra's hair. MacPhail starts the machine at the same moment, something explodes, somewhere. Then Lord Asriel appears in a swirl of deus ex masculine and rescues Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> I feel the need to point out that the lock of hair, we, we did see her collect that from Lyra in this book. In the cave, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I don't know about the necklace, I guess, but... <clears throat> I think it's the first time in this book it's it's mentioned for the first time, which is totally fine. I don't actually have a problem with it. I'm just poking fun at it. It's fine to, you know, like, make it up as you go along, not have planned it out three books ahead. I actually think it's ridiculous that people require that kind of thing. Like, this wasn't in the first book, so it's not real. Like, come on. I don't mind it as long as I don't know about it, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Like, if I hear an author say, I just make it up as I go along, I don't plan anything, then I'm, when I'm reading their books, I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> or maybe maybe the particular author I'm talking about just wasn't that good. It's possible. I never read any more of their books. So anyways, general feelings. Uh, I love chapter 23. Obviously, it is, uh, dare I say, perfection. It is wonderful. I love all of it. And I really like that 24 and 25, even though they are incredibly different than 23, correct things that we've been complaining about, like... Mrs. Coulter tries to turn the charm on Father MacPhail, and he does not fall for it. And, and we see the Galavespians, like, in action as spies and how they actually do work. And they, they were just well-done chapters, I thought. Good little spy action asides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think chapter 23 is, like, the heart of the entire trilogy. I think it's incredibly well done. Like, it's so, there's so much going on thematically and allegorically like it's it's all just like a masterpiece and then the following two chapters are like a fun James Bond thing starring Mrs. Coulter that I actually like really enjoyed well I'm sticking with the general mood in the room and I really liked chapter 23 I thought it was 
as Alan said, kind of the culmination of a lot of the themes that have been running through the book so far. It really is where Lyra starts to step into her role biblically, if that makes sense. That's probably doesn't give quite the impression I'm thinking of, but it, it really is kind of facing those things head on and going, hey, this is what we're all about. And then, yeah, chapter 24 and 25 are excellent, and I really thought they would be great chapters everywhere else, but they kind of pale in comparison to 23. Wow, okay, so I'm going to disagree with all of you. Like, okay, I Look, understand... we're all wrong sometimes. What? <laughs> we're all wrong sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I enjoy interpreting Anya's what as, no, I'm fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> wrong there as well (laughs) i understand why you love chapter 23 i just don't think it's good narrative like it's a lot of exposition there's not really that much conflict i don't know it just it's not fun to read and maybe that's just because like i already know what happens and you know i probably enjoyed it more the first time i was reading it but i don't know Like, I'm not saying that I'm a better writer than Pullman or I have ideas for how to have pulled off the same points conceptually and philosophically in a better narrative way. But there's just something about it that it's like, it's just a lot of talking. I like it because I find it is full of emotion and really good character stuff. Interesting. Maybe then it's that I'm not that attached to roger <laughs> and that's i don't why, care like, about roger so you, i don't it's give one lyra single thing? shit about roger okay it's about lyra and will and like will trying to use the knife when he all he can think about is the harpies well harping on about his mom and lyra trying to explain to you know every single person ever who has died that maybe being a part of the world is better even if they won't be themselves i love that shit and and like lyra becoming this person who uses her storytelling ability to convince people to show them a better way to i don't know i think that stuff is great i do agree that there is some really good stuff in 23 and i think like you just pulled out the highlights but i think it is kind of front-loaded with just like a kind of boring conversation between Lyra and Roger. And so maybe that like set me off on the wrong foot. Maybe. Favorite parts. Roger is, uh, no. Um, (laughs) I actually, my favorite part actually comes from the later two chapters, the ones that are kind of more bonkers, um, where what I really like here is the comparison that happens where Father McPhail actually like sacrifices himself. And there's this interesting moment where he's, trying to get his demon to go into the cage and it doesn't want to. It's like fighting him, which is so fascinating to me because we know that this is like an interior part of yourself. It's kind of expressing things that you can't express. It's like kind of your subconscious maybe a little bit. And it just reminds me of Lyra leaving Pan behind at the shore that to me, this is the same kind of action, even though they're, they're like characterized very different morally. Uh, And I think that that's super important because if you have like just rules where you say like, don't lie, 
don't do this, don't do that, then the action itself is bad. And the like all of the details and circumstances around it don't matter, right? And what his Dark Materials is saying is like, all that context is what makes it right or wrong to do. And so I think there's an equivalence between Lyra leaving Pan behind on the shore and feeling torn up about that and Father McPhail sacrificing his demon and himself to create this explosion that there's like a difference morally in the same action there. And and Pullman is like making that point by like, it's not, you shouldn't set yourself on fire to keep people, other people warm. You know, like Anya says that a lot. I don't know if you say that on podcasts a lot, but I've heard you say it a lot. Um, and, and like, that's, not necessarily a right or wrong thing to do in his dark materials. Sometimes it's the right thing. And sometimes it's the wrong thing. Like McPhail thinks he's doing the best thing for everybody in the universe. And Lyra thinks she's doing the best thing for like Roger and her friend will to get to see his father again and stuff like that. And so I don't know. It's just, it's just really, I, I love that morality is more complicated than a bunch of rules in his dark materials. And this is an example of that. Mm-hmm. I actually also really like that bit just because it shows that Father McPhail really believes what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's not just in it for the power or whatever. He, he genuinely believes and is willing to sacrifice himself for it. Um, my favorite part was the talking about death, which mm-hmm. is uh, very nonspecific considering the general, um, the general trend of this entire set of books. But also, very specifically, chapter 23 has an excellent monologue about death, which I will talk about more later, but I loved it. My favorite part is the ghost being like, what's going to happen to us? And Will saying, just ask the alethiometer and tell them the truth. Lyra has a whole monologue here, yeah. And I'm just going to read some of my favorite parts of it and cross my fingers I don't cry again. Um... All the atoms that were them, they've gone into the air and the wind and the trees and the earth and all the living things. They'll never vanish. They're just a part of everything, and that's exactly what'll happen to you. I swear to you, I promise on my honor, you'll drift apart, it's true, but you'll be out in the open, part of everything alive again. I like that bit, and I really like how it's mirrored later on in the book, which I can't talk about. But um, I love that a lot. The parts that really stuck out for me were just, again, like, I love anything with Mrs. Coulter, basically. I love um, her interactions with the, like, under-priest servant guy. I love her matching with, with McPhail. I love her and Lord Roke as unlikely allies. Like, everything in Chapter 24, I just thought was really fun i do definitely want a mrs coulter and Lo- lord rogue buddy cop story like yeah yeah yes <laughs> i wish we'd gotten so much more of the two of them working together mm-hmm. with like an 80s theme track yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes all right least favorite part i'm gonna just pick something super nitpicky in chapter 23 um when Roger and Lyra are talking. At one point, he refers to his demon as my demon, like twice. Um, and 
I don't know. It just stuck out to me as like really out of character and it like threw me out of the text because like it's your fucking demon. You're going to use its name and like Lyra and Roger would both know his demon's name and they would use it. Like I don't know his demon's name in this moment, so I can't use it, but like I feel like Pullman should have trusted the reader and like I would have picked it up by context to figure out because when Lyra's like, oh, I had to leave Pan behind and Roger could have been like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Fill I really in the blank. like this critique. This is good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When you yeah, say no. that he should have trusted yeah. the reader, like that really hit me. I was like, oh, damn, mm. you're right. That is why that choice was made, probably. Yeah, I don't I don't think they trusted the the reader to remember his demon's name and like I don't think the reader mm. would have but also they should have trusted the reader enough to just pick it up from context that he was talking about his demon because we do know yeah. like what happened with all of that we did literally see that it was a major plot point of the first book yes it was yeah. the climax mm. of the first book so yeah. yes <laughs> and it's like and those are the kind of things that when I say like something about chapter 23 especially like the front half of that was just like a little off and like I think put me in like not the best mood and so like even though I did really appreciate things about the latter half of chapter 23 it was hard for me to say that chapter 23 was my favorite you know generally speaking I think these chapters were all pretty solid so nothing really uh sticks out other than a dude snuck into Mrs. Coulter's room and took a necklace off of her she would 100% wake up like I don't believe for a second that she would sleep through that no, I mean, I did want her to catch up, and I, in fact, when I was as I was rereading it, I was wondering if that was what would happen. Yeah, I wanted her to wake up, catch the guy, kill his demon, and then that would be cooler. And they said, "Nope, nope, we don't do that." And this is like, eh, I, I wanted that. I think that would have been cooler. Okay, but aren't you actually a pickpocket? Don't you know how to like steal things off of people? I'm not a pickpocket. I'm just a kleptomaniac. <laughs> okay. Are you it's letting out that he is a felon on the podcast? What are you doing? I guess a, a pickpocket um, implies a that that's how you make your living. No, yeah. well, also, we don't have felonies in the UK. Oh, oh there you go. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, well, um, not not in not defined by law in that way. Anyway, no, I am not a pickpocket, but I have very occasionally when I was younger stole friends things because it was funny and it was really easy. Um, taking someone's necklace off, not easy. Yeah, let alone in the dark. And yeah. also she would be lying down, so... And she's like, like omnipotent. To... Yeah, it just <laughs> it just didn't feel right. Because, I mean, like, if, if she was that vulnerable when she was sleeping, she would have been killed so many times previously by everybody. Well, she was sleeping so completely because her buddy cop, Lord Roke, was watching over her, who she trusts completely, uh... That's reason. why. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I, okay. I was actually, my least favorite thing was that Lord Roke dies after like he gets stomped on and his leg gets broken and then he continues to fight like a badass Viking, a three inch tall Viking, I guess. <laughs> He's and at least die. 10 inches, okay? Yeah. And so like, I just <laughs> felt bad for Roke. I was like, and then Lord Asriel is like, where's Lord Roke? And she's like, he died. And he's like, Okay. And then they fly away and it's like, no, give him a proper burial in a tiny, tiny grave. <laughs> Just a pothole. Something. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, you could put him in like a potted plant even, you know? <laughs> Good God, people. 
so for problematic, I'm going to go first because uh, Alan has written like a whole essay here, but mine is just a little thing. As much as I do love, love all of the stuff in the world of the dead about being a part of the world again and blah, blah, blah. When the harpies, you know, want stories from somebody and say, oh, shoot, what is it like? If they haven't experienced the world and have nothing to tell, then we don't have to show them the way out and that sort of thing. The way that it's written feels very 90s. Video games are ruining our children because they don't go outside anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. I Which see Which is true. What you mean. I was truly ruined by video games in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, me too. Definitely. Um, great. <laughs> <laughs> so that just felt like a bunch of BS. But also very, very white British man, very old white British man. Um, to be fair, I am reading this, rereading this book on my phone. So they weren't entirely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, my problematic, I wrote out a bunch here just because I was nervous about, and maybe you guys will disagree with me about this. There, there's something that bothers me in this chapter. It reminds me of an essay from another book that Philip Pullman wrote, what's that called? Demon Voices, uh, on writing his kind of like, uh, collection of essays about writing and, uh, and different stuff about his dark materials gives like some background on different stuff. Um, one of the essays that he has in there is a response to Stephen Hawking lecture that was given in Oxford. You can read the uh, article for free online, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, it's called The Origin of the Universe, The Story of Telling Science and Religion um, by Philip Pullman. It's included in the book Demon Voices. And basically, like, it lays out this idea that I think happens in the chapter 23 with the harpies where they say they're, they're nourished by the truth. It like calms them down and they listen to it as opposed to when Lyra lied to them about her life previously. And Pullman talks about the difference between the cosmological story that um, Hawking is telling and the cosmological origin story that, Hawking uses an example from uh, an African group called the Bashongo people, uh, their god Mabombo. Uh, the way that he creates the universe is um, he he gets like bad indigestion and throws up, and everything that he throws up is like the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the animals. It's, these are all like different gastrological events, basically. <laughs> that, <laughs> Astronomy versus astronomy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And there's some good wordplay in that essay. I think actually the essay is really thoughtful. I encourage people to read it. Um, I I don't think it's like problematic, but it does lay out Pullman in there. What I think of as a modernist perspective. And so like modernity in order to exist, like when I say modernity, I'm not talking about like, you know, we live nowadays, like we were talking about with phones and video games and things like that. What I'm talking about is an intellectual way of thinking. It's not like a time space. It's like a, a paradigm. And so for modernity to exist, you have to have like a contrast. You have to have, even if it doesn't exist, you have to have an idea of the primitive. And so then we end up casting other groups as the primitives. What this essay claims is that the, that, story by the Bashongo people is intentionally an investigation of the origins of the universe. 
and that it's like somehow lazy and superstitious as compared to science, and that science is therefore a more satisfying way to get to the answers of the origin of the universe. Which like presupposes that that is what the project of religion is, is that it's a lazy, superstitious enterprise of science, which is like enormously problematic, I think. I, okay, I don't disagree with you, but what does that have to do with these chapters? So like when the harpies calm down and they're like, oh, this is nourishing and good to us because it's the truth. This is like characterizing, this is why religion is bad for you because it's a lie. As a, And we get that literally later in that chapter where the religious guy is like, this is heaven when like all evidence to the contrary, clearly, right? And he's like, we live forever here. And, and so it characterizes religion as like a self-deluded, lie that misinterprets reality because the people who are telling the lie and are self-deluded cannot handle the truth psychologically. And I think it just totally misunderstands and mischaracterizes the enterprise of religion in human experience. Like, that's not what religion is. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you've said. I do think that like various types of fundamentalist Christianity use that like literal biblical lens to try to completely reinterpret science and like make scientific conclusions based on the Bible. Yeah, I guess I would just say that like I think there is a criticism to be made there, but yeah, I agree the way that it is employed here and especially like singling out African as primitive is like very problematic. That was, to be clear, that was Hawking who did that and Pullman, I think his his exploration of that is actually very sober and thoughtful and like well done in the essay. Mm-hmm. I give him like full credit for it. He also talks about the fundamentalists, but you like totally nailed what I'm trying to say in that the fundamentalists are kind of framing the argument according to their standards and then like bringing science into that frame, which is like not appropriate, right? And and the reverse is also true, I think. And we tend to do this as like modern western people, we like see everything through our frame and we don't try to see it through any other culture's uh, frame. But Mm -hmm. it's only problematic. I'm not saying that like Pullman is like wrong to do this or something like that, or that there's a big, huge wrongness in the chapter or that I disagree with. Like, I think all of this is great. I think it's just important to like keep in mind that like the debate, like the terms of the debate are not like, religion is a story and science is a study of reality. Therefore science is better. Like, like that's a broken way to see things, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's, this whole conversation is just making me think of um, the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, And she's a, a native scientist, um, her people are from upstate New York, I think. But she talks about their creation story 
and how that informs the way that she practices science philosophically, but not necessarily literally um, Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is, is really powerful. I guess the problem that I have with like the whole modernity paradigm is that, and especially the way that Pullman frames it is that things are either literally true and real when we talk about them or they're metaphorical and that religion should be taken as, as like a metaphor. Um, And that I just want to be clear that like, that is a way of thinking like that is a modernist perspective and is not like fundamentally true. Like you don't have to, it's like a metaphor is, is, is not what a story is. And a religion is partially a story. Like when we read this story, we don't read it as a metaphor. Like we read it as these things are literally happening to Lyra and Will within the frame of the story, which we understand to be like a fictional account of events. But they are literally true within the frame. And while they may stand in for certain things allegorically or metaphorically, like with in terms of the experience of people, they are literally true within the frame and we should understand them as so. And we do understand them as so because like Caitlin was saying, when she was reading it, you know, she cried at this passage or that, or we laugh at this or we love these characters in this way. We wouldn't do that. We don't feel that way about lies. There, this, the comp- it's more complicated than it being true or untrue. And so religion operates the same way. We should not assume that ancient people or people from quote unquote primitive belief systems do not have a sophisticated relationship, you know, with storytelling, with religion, with understanding reality. But we do because we're modern, because we live now, because we live in the West, because mm-hmm. we have access to philosophy. Well, and then kind of going back to what I was talking about before, it's because we're having to deal with Christian fundamentalists who do not have a sophisticated relationship with right. storytelling. Like everything yeah. <laughs> that they interpret is like it has to be literally true. Yeah, so I'll just read this quote that Pullman has in the essay to that point. He says, The trouble comes when fundamentalists insist that there is no such thing as analogy or metaphor, or else uh, that they are wicked and satanic, uh, and that they must only be a literal understanding of stories. The Bible is literally true. The world is created in six days. The Kansas Board of Education says so. Uh, And then comparing that to science, he says, The delight for me in the account of Professor Hawking that he gave us tonight and has given us in his marvelous book, A Brief History of Time, is that we can both listen to it with wonder and take it literally. And so to him, the value of truth is that you can marvel at it, and it's also literally real. And so why bother believing in something that is not literally real, uh, but does give you the awe? And and I'm just, I just want to point out to people that that's not the point of what religion is. Like, that is the point of what religion is for some people in our society, but is not and has not been for all people at all times in all places. Um, I, I will also point out that that understanding of the, you know, the account that Professor Hawking gave being literal and exact and objectively true is also a fundamental misunderstanding of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't have, we cannot know things is right. the <laughs> fundamental there. 
we we can think things and we can have pretty damn good evidence for things but we basically cannot know that things are by definition true so it's one of those things which is like yes but also no like yeah there's definitely more evidence and i find um i find the intricacies of science way more fascinating and way more interesting and more believable than the intricacies of some parts of religion but it is dangerous to go come along and say we can take this literally because that kind of implies taking it uncritically and i'm not sure that is necessarily the right approach i just want to say i agree with all this this is a great conversation i disagree that it is mirrored in the book right now i mean that's fair it is something that i got a feeling especially with the harpies when they were talking and i was like man this feels just like that pullman essay this part of it bothers me in chapter 23, especially with the guy at the end. But I get it. Like, this is Pullman's message. And I don't even disagree with his message. But just like, I don't know, it just bothered me. So like, I, it, I think it it's worth moving me, on from. <laughs> well, fair. But I just, it's, it seems to me like you're saying somebody who is a storyteller, that is who Philip Pullman is, is trying to make the point that stories are bullshit. And I'm like, I doubt that that's what he's doing. No, it's it's totally not. It's totally not what he's doing in the essay. And um, no, yeah, fuck it, the essay in the chapter. In the I've chapter, I've never read this essay. Yeah, <laughs> even in the chapter, right? Because Lyra tells a true story, and the story uh, has enormous power to sway people. Um, so I think I think in a lot of ways, Lyra is a storyteller in everything that she does. In it, in a lot of ways, she's like a writer and. Uh, her character is an exploration for Pullman of like writing and stuff like that. That's just my own opinion. So like, I think as a hero, like storytellers are the heroes of his dark materials in a lot of ways. So, but religion isn't. And like, I think that he believes something fundamentally about religion that is a misunderstanding of what religion is. And like he and I just would not agree about what it is. And so I see its influence here. And I think it's worth pointing out, like, if people agree with Pullman and don't agree with me, that's fine. But just know the, you know, no, we're going to leave it there. Science. (laughs) 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 That's fine. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is Alan again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about this uh, where Anya has pointed out a few times that, like, why are there all these angels in the story? They're literally real. If this is supposed to be an atheist text, like this all flew over my head when I was a kid. And like, what does that mean in the story? And something I noticed here was when the passage that Caitlin quoted, that the ghosts are composed of literal physical particles that are the same as all matter in the universe, and they will freely mix back, you know, in with everything. And so there's no kind of like, matter spirit duality in his dark materials universe and so there's no supernatural the supernatural categories like angel ghost soul those don't are not meaningful in a duality sense everything is made of stuff in his dark materials and i think that's like super deliberate on pullman's part and is part of the point so like Yes, there are angels, but what are those angels made of? Yes, there are ghosts, but what are they? They they are stuff. They are things. Uh, and there's no 
there is no platonic spiritual other realm. There's only the physical realm. I wrote that down about demons also later yeah. on because it mentions that they're made of atoms also. And I was like, but they're spirits, but like they're literally a part of you. But I guess it makes sense that they're atoms because anybody can touch them. But it's just, it's a weird thought that they're actually made of physical things. Mm-hmm. But they're definitely mm-hmm. like, yeah, they're made of physical things, but also those atoms can like disassociate and basically like vanish in a poof of dust in a way that like the body our doesn't. bodies don't, right? Like they take time yeah. to decay. So that's kind of interesting to think about. Yep. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting here was that the science is weaponized by the authority, which always happens in real life. And so like the Galavespians use quantum entanglement to communicate with each other and the Magisterium uses it to create like a remote nuclear bomb, which was yeah, like terrifying when I realized it. I was like, Jesus. This is this actually brings on to a, the the science point I had written down, which is I don't see why they were taking the bomb to the dam because they have a bomb, right? Yeah, I have and this too. the they are essentially bootstrapping this bomb by severing someone's soul from their body, which we have already established creates a huge amount of energy, and then that triggers the bomb. But then why the dam? Are we using the dam to charge the bomb? Like this it it feels like like they could do if it's if it's a lot of electricity, but it it's it's just it's completely unexplained and it sort of just feels like you're putting them in a set piece because he envisioned it and then kind of came up with a reason as to why it happened there later. It's just it feels slightly clunky. It doesn't really like. I mean, scientifically, I, I see what they're going with. With the small explosion creates bigger explosion, but also even that is a that there's there's a lot more physics in that than just small bomb makes big bomb bigger <clears throat> question mark. Like what? I, I just don't get it. And now on to religion, which you know you could be forgiven to f- thinking for thinking that we've already done religion but here we are religion <laughs> right. again um and i have been champing at the bit for weeks literally to talk about chapter 23 mostly because i feel that the way that death is described fits very perfectly with my own personal understanding of death and of the parts of a person or a being that are what they are. So, in the book, we had that lovely quote that Caitlin wrote out, wrote out, read out earlier, about everything will return to dust. And in a literal sense, that's sort of true. I mean, your body will very likely decay eventually. Even embalming will keep it un decayed for a certain amount of time but eventually it will decay one way or another and the particles that made you up the atoms the molecules admittedly the molecules are made of atoms yes they will all (laughs) go back out into the universe that will happen so your body turns to dust 
But what about the soul? Now, personally, I don't believe in a soul per se. I see it as an emergent property of how you have how you are connected together. You have your neurons, they're firing in certain orders, they're doing things, and thus, as an emergent property of that, you have your consciousness. We can't really prove much more than that. We don't know precisely how that all goes together to create something that thinks about itself, but we know that it is probably just an emergent property of connecting enough stuff together in that way. Now, so they talk about the soul. And the way I see it, this non-physical thing that is a part of everyone, and possibly a part of every being, is really better conceived of, to me, as the effect that you have on the world around you and on the people and on the beings around you. If you think about it like a footprint, even when the foot is gone, the footprint does remain. And as such, the sum total of the thing, of the being that you are, the, it's maybe not a direct definition of who you are, but it's certainly an impression made by you on the world around you. That is, to me, the soul. That is, to me, the other part. And maybe it's something we can't directly image, we can't capture a soul, but we can see the imprints that it makes throughout history, throughout everyone else's lives around you. When you have a funeral, most of what you end up talking about is the effect that person had on your life. Same with animals. If you have an animal and that animal passes away, I see it as leaving a little paw print in your existence. A little something. Uh, you know, it may be not physical things per se, but it could be you hear a mule or a woof in the night, which your mind made up, and just for a brief second you go, hey, I wonder if that was blank. And then, you know, often you'll get sad because it wasn't that. But that very thing, that train of thought, is the imprint of that animal, is the imprint of that person. When you're waiting, when you feel your phone vibrate and you're like, oh, I wonder if that's mum, but mum died. That wonder, that hope, it's bittersweet. It's not very nice all the time, but I choose to see that as the person, the being, their imprint, the effect they had on everything around them. And in a manner, the bit that lives on. They may be gone, their body may be but ashes and dust, and yet they still continue to influence the world even though they don't get to do that directly. And I think that the almost soliloquy it is is a wonderful explanation of that and an introduction to that way of thinking for people who haven't necessarily come across it before. And I I like that. 
I thought that that's why this part of this chapter is my favorite is because it so strongly mirrors how I independently came to view the world. It wasn't really from this. I didn't really pick up on this. And prior to this, I, I remember from quite a young age, not really believing in an afterlife, but realizing that I didn't feel I needed an afterlife because life is quite wonderful and you don't go away from the world just because you died. Mm. So yes, uh, that was the thing I've been wanting to say for a good few weeks now since we haven't <laughs> recorded. But also, Beautiful. Yeah, it's, yeah I love uh, it. I must okay. say I'm, I'm jealous of um, the ending because I feel very similarly to a lot of what you just said, but it, it worries me that I don't know if there's an afterlife, but I also can't make myself believe in one. So the way I look at that, um, particularly on the afterlife side, is that in the absence of knowledge of an afterlife or not, we certainly know that the life we have right now is. And thus, rather than worrying about the afterlife and what happens when we die, I see it as parsimonious and sensible to try and make our lives that we know we have and our existence that we know we have as good and as moral as possible. I, I agree. Uh, I just, I find it, I can't just like turn off this. Like death is like my number one fear and the number one source of my anxiety. If I'm ever super like having a panic attack about something, it's because I think I will die. Yeah, I understand. So that. it's it's not something I can turn off however no. much I want to, unfortunately. No. But I but again, I've tried to make myself believe in things and I'm like, I don't believe in any of this bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah. and I've tried not just one thing. You know, yeah. on the other hand, like, I love what you said about people leaving behind people and animals leaving behind foot and paw prints. Um, but I also find it sad to think we'd never see them again or talk to them again. Although, I mean, some of them, maybe it's kind of happy that we'd never have to see them again. <laughs> um, <laughs> to me, not dealing with it doesn't, it, this, this sounds very pro pragmatic, if you will, but mm -hmm. not dealing with it or dealing with it doesn't change the fact that they that that is the truth that they are no longer going to be there like yes it is sad yeah. but there is yeah. nothing that one can do about that short of maybe some necromancy and whilst that sounds awesome i'm all for the necromancy <laughs> I, I i find it nicer to try to come to terms with the fact and that doesn't mean that grief is easier for me because of that it has a structure and i know what my end point is but there's still a process to go through to truly accept that and to accept it internally and subconsciously as well as logically. I just, I guess, like I'm, I'm sure I'm the first person ever to think this, <laughs> but it's just a shame that we can't know. You know? Yeah, it would be way nicer. <laughs> that would be way, be way nicer. Easier. <laughs> if we had an alethiometer to ask, <sighs> or a knife to like check out that world of the dead, just something. Anyway, that's enough on religion from me. I love the way that Pullman redeems the Harpy characters just because, you know, like the way that they're described physically, honestly, like gruesome and revolting and they're not shown as like having any redeeming qualities. 
I feel like in most kids books you would play that characterization very straightforward and and like those aren't the kind of characters who get a chance to be redeemed or to like mm-hmm. you know come over to the good side quote unquote whatever um so i think that itself is like a very interesting choice that that is kind of unexpected just based on like archetypes and the background of kids lit that this story is sitting in even the word harpy right is usually like a yeah derogatory word for a woman i think that has to do with what i talked about earlier uh this season with the christian perspective starts out with the world is ruined and the harpies say at one point that they just never knew there was anything good in the world at all because the only thing that they were created to be able to see in people was what they were ashamed of and all the bad things that they did. So they just assumed that the world is just a wicked place that's horrible until Lyra tells this story about like, you know, having fun and playing outside and getting muddy and bonding with people who aren't like you. And I think that is like kind of a commentary on that Christian perspective of, you know, a kind of pessimistic view of the world that everybody... And this is like baked into our society in really poisonous ways, I think, where we assume the worst about people, that everyone is selfish, everyone is out to get their own, we can't trust other people. And so that's like how we calibrate all of our laws and how we calibrate like the way security operates and our assumptions about people, especially people who are marginal, you know, they're going to be cheating the system and blah, 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 blah. A part of the Harpy's redemption is a paradigm shift in the way that they see the universe. You know, like you said, it's because of them hearing a story. But an important part of it is that it they break out of the belief that the world is a ruinous place to begin with. Does anybody, because I read this book when I was very young. Well, I was 14. And every now and then I think, like, what the fuck would I tell the Harpies? Mhm. It's not it's not much, you know? Like I had I had a lot of friends. We did shit. <laughs> that's that's what I got. I think they're impressed by Lyra's story. She doesn't tell them about like I'm friends with a talking bear king and you know, like <laughs> I rode in an airship and then I went through a portal. She tells them about like playing in the mud. And they're like, amazing. You know, I think that's important. I think that's like a deliberate choice he made there. That's true. That's That's a really good point that I hadn't considered. But I'm just I'm just bringing up. So everybody who's reading these books for the first time, every now and then in your life, just think to yourself, God, what the fuck would I tell the harpies? Because that's (laughs) been bothering me since I was 14 years old and I'm 36 now. So (laughs) I actually I have that exact thing down here lower that the deal with the harpies is kind of existentialism light, right? Like, right now, you could be reading and and asking yourself, will this be a good story for the harpies as a way to motivate yourself to live your life? Like, and that's like an example of what I was talking about earlier about how religion doesn't need to be literally true in a way where like, you don't need to literally believe it's true. And it's also not a metaphor like you don't think there's harpies that you're going to have to talk to after you die, but it's worth thinking about that. 
and it yeah. can change your life in an important way that matters. Uh, and so just just like when we do our last episode, I'd like to challenge all of us to come up with a, Ooh. a story that we would tell the harpies. Like in That's the way that uh, we had to pick yeah, each Yeah, like how we demons. gave each other demons. Yeah, yeah, same thing. I like but that. not for each other. Don't do that. No, 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 no. Come up with your own story. And if any, uh, I mean, this is going to be finished before anybody hears it. But if any listeners want to send them in, we'll uh, we'll read your stories out too. That would be cool. Oh, that sounds really cool. Like and if they're fake, we'll shout, liar, 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 liar. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, we do not have any supernatural ability liar. to tell if you're lying. Liar. <laughs> when I first read these books as a preteen slash teenager, I didn't, you know, have that much of a background in philosophy or like that much to compare it to. Um, and when I was reading it more recently for this podcast and for the sh- uh, the TV show, um, it just struck me how similar the ending is to the Good Place TV show in a lot of ways. Um, I guess spoiler for the Good Place. Um, oh yeah, the harpies in the good place. Yeah, <laughs> there's no harpies in the good place. Um, no, but the the similarities in that like, so in the good place, right? It will eventually get so boring and repetitive if you're there for literally eternity that it like becomes its own hell. The end of the TV series, right? Is they basically get the committee or whatever to agree to give everybody who's in the good place the opportunity to leave whenever they want. There's like a door that they can walk through. It's very similar in the sense that it's giving people agency to choose when their existence is over. And it's really like, I think, interrogating the idea that not existing anymore is the worst or most terrifying thing that could happen and that actually existing forever is in some ways or at least to some people more terrifying and awful than like having that agency to choose to end your own existence i think a big part of the good places message in that and i think also in his dark materials is that you can't have morality without choice can your life be good can anything be good if you don't choose it? You're you're not participating in it if you don't have the agency, like you said. And you can't have that agency without a choice to not do it. I suspect that there's some influence from his dark materials on The Good Place among the writers. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It was like a pretty influential book series. Yeah. Okay, so this isn't really about religion per se, but I guess we can kind of transition to the general comment section. And this is about chapter 23. I do like that we basically get confirmation that Lyra's fragmented dreams about talking to Roger were actually real conversations because Roger says that he was talking to her too. Does he? Because I was actually going to say that I think I was wrong about that. No, he does. He says that like the whole time. He says he was talking about her, that he believed she would come. But it doesn't actually confirm that they were talking. It just says that he told people she would come for him. I thought he said that he was trying to talk to her. Maybe I misread that. I think what he says is that he pretended like he was talking to her. But I 
I took that to be he was talking to her and misunderstood what was happening because she's not like appearing. It's like they can hear each other, but they can't see each other or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that's kind oh, of how I, I interpreted remember that at all. That's how I interpreted it too, where it's like he felt like he was talking to her like a mirage, but assumed it was a dream. Oh, I that went, that just went whoosh over my head. Yeah, and then another thing that I thought was kind of interesting here um, when Lyra's talking about like, oh, I knew about the prophecy all along and I just chose not to think about it. It's interesting the kind of parallel between that like unfocusing on the prophecy and just like going about what she had to do with mm-hmm. the same way that she unfocuses her mind to use the alethiometer. That that's like in order to do this thing, you have to try not to do it. And it's like a, a paradox of some kind. I love how the book like continuously shows us how good Lyra is at that and how bad Will is it is at it. Yeah. Because he just cannot like he always needs to be like, okay, okay, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and while Lyra is just like what? I'm not thinking about that. Yeah, and it is interesting too, right? Because like, the whole book has basically brought her to this moment and I can't remember if we actually talked about this before, if this was just something that I said, but, you know, like, Lyra's reason for going to the world of the dead was like, kind of dumb, in all honesty, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I need to tell my best friend that I'm sorry, like, lots of people have regrets of things that they never got to tell their dead friends and family. Like, what makes you think you're special, Lyra? Um, I think death literally Lyra. says that to her. <laughs> it's like, what? why should there be an exception for you? Yeah. And Will is like, I have a knife, motherfucker. That's why. <laughs> but Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and like if you if you look at what Lyra's doing logically, it makes no sense. It's super dumb. It's like there's a giant ass battle going on. There's like so much at stake here, and you want to go apologize to your like dumb eight year old friend who is inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. But that like very intuitive, emotionally connected instinct ends up getting her to where she needs to be. It's like a teleology. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And according to the Galavespians, this is like going to be a super move, right? That would like destabilize the authorities' hold over the universe. Mm-hmm. Because this is like a sink that everyone in the universe falls into, we find out here. Like there's there's Galavespians here. There's the Mulefa here. Um and so by opening a way out of this, it changes everything about the way the authority has set up the universe because she followed this dumb instinct to save her friend, which was also like the motivation in the first book that unraveled like the authorities hold in the magisterium, like Mrs. Coulter's whole thing. It like destroyed her agency. It Wasn't it Lee in the previous book who, who said to Will's father, He was like, I think you should do good where you, or you should fight evil where you find it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like the morality of these books, right? You shouldn't be Lord Asriel trying to save the world. You should be Lyra trying to save your friend. 
It's almost like that's exactly where the plot goes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the final thought that I had was that I love the decision to have the golden monkey actually do something good and save the day. Because the gold, you didn't put this in the summary. You made it sound like Mrs. Coulter physically mm-hmm. herself was the person who like got Lyra's hair out of the death machine. But it's actually the golden monkey. You know, throughout the books up until this point, Mrs. Coulter has like sometimes been, you know, like evil and conniving and sometimes been, you know, like somewhat nurturing and and like doing things that seem selfless but like even when mrs coulter is doing things that seem selfless for lyra's benefit the monkey is always like in the corner flipping everyone else the bird you know or like making hateful faces (laughs) in the background and so the fact that the golden monkey saved the day in this situation i feel like pullman is trying to say something about Mrs. Coulter's character and how her character is actually changing. Um, And I love that he did that. Uh, I will say, like, the golden monkey didn't get all of the hair. Yeah, and it says there's, like, there's an explosion. It literally says there's an explosion. Something explodes somewhere is literally what it says in the text. Something explodes somewhere. Okay. So I guess we're on a cliffhanger. Maybe it's a cliffhanger. Maybe Lyra is dead and maybe the world of the dead is exploded. (laughs) This is, this is, in fact, the last chapter. Yeah. It's dead. It worked. <laughs> so I just wanted to mention that when Mrs. Coulter steals the intention craft from the Republic of Heaven, whatever, what's-his-face's stronghold, somehow she finds her way back to her own world. How? Luck. <laughs> Intention. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, then I do kind of feel like... When the harpies are all, you know, we had a job, we were proud, blah, 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 blah. And the Galavespians are like, yes, we understand. We will explain what you can do now. It just seems like, oh, yes, this is why the Galavespians had to be such little prideful shits. Oh, wow. Proud I shit. love that. Yeah, shut up. Proud. <laughs> Whatever. Um, because obviously Lyra and Will would have been like, can't you just do this out of the goodness of your heart? That's a great point. I love that. That's it for this time. Next time, we'll be talking about chapters 26 through 29. If you like our show, please take the time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at FrancisWindrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember, we're all going to die. Apparently deciding he has enough information, he moves to the only logical logical location available. Inside Mrs. Coulter. (laughs) Inside of her. Interesting. (laughs) Inside Mrs. Coulter's coat, pressed against... It's not pressed against her breasts. It is. It's in her breast pocket. Yeah. 
It's conspicuous I, to me. It's weird. Okay. Okay. He wants to write it. I will point it out. <laughs> Inside Mrs. Coulter's coat, pressed against her breasts. Then Lord Asriel appears in a swirl of deus ex masculine and rescues Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> oh, I actually... Deus ex masculine is amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually, my brain read it as deus ex machina. And then when you said it out loud, like, lost my shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. I feel that could be the title of a whole pithy paper. About right. some sort of literary <laughs> shit. I want to go last. Because you disagree with all of us and yeah. you hate us? Yeah. It's fine. Least favorite part? Oh, wait. I didn't go. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. It's fine. <laughs> Anya. Um, the least favorite part. <laughs> is when Anya talks. Um, <laughs> that's not true at all. I'm just a terrible person. That's not what I meant. Uh, Ask a dead I've- person? <laughs> is it really this way <laughs> are you guys really trapped yeah you should, you should form a union ask for a better deal um, the union um, of the dead is a wonderful name for a book and a premise yeah, for a book to be fair it's probably out there it's gotta be however you want to read a book is the right way to read a book so yeah, yeah. except upside down I mean, if but you if that's what you want to do, and you and it, you get the story. I nope. mean, Un- uh, unacceptable. Okay. <laughs> Actually, Francis has drawn a line in the sand on. This upside is the hill down. I die on. <laughs> okay, we're back to deontology. If you know someone who reads a book upside down, Francis will please pick send their a pocket picture. and get rid of that book. Please write in. No, no, please just send a picture. I want to see that. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> I look forward to burning in hell because I know that all the people who I hate will be there too, and I can listen to them scream while I'm being tortured. I'm, I mean, I'm also I'm excited. If, it, if there's a hell, that's going to be where all the gays are, and that sounds like a party. <clears throat> it depends. That's, it that's could, true. It, it could be where all the fundamentalists are. You don't know. That is true. Well, it is, it basically, we know we've got fundamentalists here. It's going to be no different at, at worst. Yeah, but but I don't interact with any of them here. <laughs> And you can They're not a part of my life. Just live, live as a hell hermit. That sounds great. <laughs> well, like, regardless of whether you end up in heaven or hell, you're still going to be sorted, assorted. Oh, there's no, there's no heaven. I'm just being clear. Oh, there's only well, hell. Yeah, and and the people hell I don't like will be hell. tortured, and and I'll what will be my heaven there is listening to them being tortured while I'm being tortured. Now, there is a book, and I'm trying to remember what it's called. I cannot remember the, Bible? the life of me. No, yeah. it is not the Bible. Um, <laughs> is it by this? Is, I'm trying to remember if it's by Ian Colfer. The Golden Compass? No, it is not. No, it is not. But thank you very much for that informative <laughs> guess. Um, the Northern Lights? Sorry. My, also, I just want to say, I want to say I've said this on a podcast. Fuck Ben Shapiro, you little <laughs> Please cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, cut out the last word. Just bleep it. <gasps> bleep it so they don't know. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you're British. You're allowed to say that word. Um, I honestly... So that whole thing about Lyra as a liar, truth teller, the liminality of her character, Lyra isn't being honest with herself. I wrote that like a month ago and I don't really remember <laughs> what I... 
met <laughs> by that. So if anyone wants to riff on that, you're welcome to. But I don't remember what my thought was or what my point was. Nah, I'm cool. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. we did those chapters. Thank God. <laughs> Fewer chapters. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I will... <laughs> can fly to England and punch you in the goddamn face. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Yeah, then we can go for a beer. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> I'll get some tea in. 